As men of the cross, I've often wondered how they balance using the gospel to sustain a business that keeps staff on the payroll and the attendance up. The gospel can be one that is watered down to make us feel comfortable, but then there are ministries that recognize what they give up in doing this. Today we sit down with one of the coolest pastors I've ever met, Michael Hidalgo, a man who is breaking the traditions of his denominations at the expense of bringing in those who have been ostracized. Ostracized not by God, but by the very people that they entrusted with growing their relationship with their Redeemer. This is a story about seeing people God never stopped loving and making that official church business. Michael's been nervous for months now. He's been praying nonstop, contemplating, reflecting, going back and forth about if this decision he's making is not only right for him, but the right one for his congregation. These feelings introduce something so simple to some of us and totally absurd and outlandish to others. It is this notion of inclusion, allowing people from all walks of life into his congregation and preaching the need for freedom, justice, and action for all people. Debating about your humanity is depleting, especially when it's in the church. I often wonder why this is even a thing in the church today. I was taught Jesus died for all of our sins and for all of us to walk in peace and love with each other. This teaching shaped who I am today, how I treat people and what I value. From a theology standpoint, this should be true for all followers of the Christian faith. But accepting all does not resonate the same in all churches. The difference is now seen in church politics, specifically in the demographics who we allow to sit in our pews versus those that we don't. These ramifications have long shaped this country and are now reaching new heights in the Trump era. Beginning our conversation, Michael recalls the days leading up to a perplexing announcement that could mean radical, abrupt changes for his congregation. I remember the Monday morning before that announcement, which would have been the 16th. Um, my Monday mornings are typically pretty quiet. I usually spend time um, in our offices, uh, reading, contemplating, meditating, praying. Uh, and that, that Monday morning, we were actually closed. Our offices were closed for MLK Day. But I went in anyway, um, because I had so much anxiety and so much weighing down on my heart. Because I knew when I told the congregation where we were going as a church, I was actually saying something that had been true for me for five years. And um, th that was the idea of inclusion, that God had long embraced this community. And I, I could not stop thinking leading up to that about how many people would leave. Our congregation is somewhere between 1,500, 2,000 people. And other churches that had made this move had lost 50, 60, some, some up to 75% of their weekly attendance. Um, and I knew some of those who would leave were people that I loved and people that I cared for and people who would tell me, like, I feel really betrayed, people who would feel wounded, um, people who would accuse me and our leadership of things like you're caving the culture, you're just throwing the Bible away. Um, I had people tell me I was just leading others to hell. Um, 
And some of the pastors who had done what we were about to do had literally received death threats from people um, for this. And so all of this was rolling through my mind as I was trying to breathe and trying to pray and sitting in my office on that Monday morning. And it wasn't for me just the people who would leave, but also it was people who would stay, namely our staff. You can almost hear the anxiety creeping back up on Michael as he recounts the story, those thoughts of losing those close to him. To be told you are leading others to hell, that must weigh heavy on the mind of a man that has devoted his life to following the Lord and leading others to the gospel. As pastor, Michael is directly responsible for those that follow him. So many lives depend on what comes into the church each Sunday. He was jeopardizing so many lives for what he believed was God's true word. And I knew that for every person who walked out the door, like this is the, this is the underbelly of, of church, is um, donations, offerings, gifts, tithes, everyone call it. Like there's the financial reality to this whole piece. And for me, I was preparing to have to tell friends and people I've worked with for years, people I dearly love, we cannot fund your position anymore because of this move that we made. And so I was thinking about my friends and their spouses and their kids and their financial situation. And um, everything in me was just, was, was in knots. My stomach, I, I couldn't, couldn't focus. I tried to go for a run that afternoon and like nothing was, nothing was helping. Um, but the one thing I kept coming back to was my wife had said in the days leading up, she said, I, I really think our congregation's ready for this. I really think this is our next step as a church. It's going to be fine. That, that was like her mantra. It's going to be fine. Um, and some days I thought she was blowing me off with that. Other days I thought, no, she's actually trying to comfort me with that. And every fiber of my being, I wanted to believe her, but I had known it never had gone well for a church like ours, which was, had, it was a part of the evangelical tradition, had never gone well for a church that did, uh, had done that. So um, we, we moved toward that Wednesday, January 18. We invited people to join with us for a conversation about how we would move forward with and for the LGBTQ community. And about 20 minutes before go time, I remember peeking into the auditorium. There was also already several hundred people sitting there. And so I went to my office, put on my earbuds, laid down, did like porch pose for <laughs> Uh, to, for meditation. And I listened to these, this meditation that kept saying, may I accept this present moment? May I accept this present moment? Uh, you are safe. May I accept this present moment for I am safe. Over and over those words washed over him like a constant flow of water, helping Michael find peace in this present moment. This moment that Michael was about to have was life changing and would be a climax to a religious journey that had taken him from a fierce evangelical upbringing to a far left-leaning political active one. With anxiety in his body, but courage in his heart, he found his peace. He accepted a new call of God and was about to take action as he made his way to make the announcement. And over and over, those words washed over me and moments later, uh, I walked out on the platform and I said, late in 2016, the elder team found we had reached a place of unity with regard to our continued direction as a church, which led each and every elder to unanimously support full inclusion for our LGBTQ friends.
at Denver Community Church. And so I say on behalf of the elder team of Denver Community Church to our LGBTQ friends, we officially encourage you, invite you, and support you as we do with all who call DCC home to be involved in the ministry, the community, and the work of this church at any and all levels of leadership. We want our faith community to be for you what it is for everyone, a place where you can bring your full self, where you can be known and we can have the joy of being known by you, where we can all journey together, follow Jesus, and demonstrate God's love to all people. I really think this is our next step. It's going to be fine. Uh, and it, it has been an unbelievable journey since that, since that evening. And just like that, the doors of the Denver Community Christian Church are now open to everyone from all walks of life, and its congregation will push for full inclusion for the LGBTQ community. There was such power in the words that Michael used in his announcement, encouraging, inviting, supporting, telling this previously excluded or silenced community to share their ministry and their gifts within their faith community, allowing people to be their full selves so that others can grow and learn from you and your experience. Michael's actions reveal a step toward the true power of humanity expressed in God's word. So Michael has made the big announcement. He is looking into the audience. People are cheering and clapping. Here's what we already know from the previous conversation. The evangelical faith tradition produces a Republican God that ignores and condemns the LGBTQ community. Michael is willfully abandoning tradition, standing today accepting our community not only as passive members, but engaging them into the ranks of leadership. I think, well, I'll go back to something you said earlier. You said to reject my evangelical upbringing. The word evangelism, evangelical, means good news. So I would actually say what it did was expand the world that I came from. I think that I think healthy spirituality is always a process of expansion. And as I began to understand the massiveness, the bigness, the, the expansiveness of God, the idea, like, as you said, and I love the way you said it, that I was finally seeing people that God had never not seen, never stopped seeing. Um, I think for me, what it, what, what, what was, the way I was able to contend with that, as you said, was to recognize that every, everyone operates from a very limited viewpoint. And we fool ourselves into believing that somehow we've got the corner, we've got the view, we, we have the understanding. And when we do that in talking about God, that to me is very dangerous territory. Um, Science is teaching us that we can only observe 2% of the universe. The other 98% is dark matter. We have no idea what it is. 70% um, of our planet is covered by water, and we've only seen 5% of the ocean. Um, our brain, a three and a half pound blob in our head. Um, I have a friend who <clears throat> works in neurology and psychology, and he, he said to me, we're only tapping into like the... the a little tiny bit of what we know about the brain. He's like, we have like, I mean, so far to go in even understanding that. So for me, I'm like, we can't see most of the universe. We haven't seen most of the ocean. We don't understand our brain. And yet somehow we see the way God sees. And I think for that, the way I've contended with that is realizing man, I'm so limited. Uh, and so it brings on a lot of humility and actually a lot of joy that we get, we, we get to, walk together and discover 
how big God actually is and how big and expansive his vision is. Michael's acknowledgement raises a fascinating point. Humanity believes we move and see as God when we actually don't. And how could we? But the role between God's and man's righteousness can easily become blurred. And we can create an interpretation of God to support our own political viewpoints as we've done throughout history. This reminded me of a verse my grandmother had always quoted when she was trying to recognize how God viewed an issue versus man. She would tell me, God's thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways, for they are high above the heavens. My grandmother was reminding me of an important point. What our eyes see as man cannot by default see what God sees. We should never confuse God and his divinity with the agenda of the church. This is where a lot of Michael's anxiety, I believe, stemmed from, finally leaving behind what he thought for what God said. I wanted to know how Michael balanced the radical nature of God with the status quo of the church. He has the responsibility of not only leading with revelation with his congregation, but the church is also a business with people on payroll and things to get done. That creates a bias in what the congregation wants to hear not reaching some people and being silent on some issues. I wanted to know about this distinction between hearing from God and moving with the crowd. Well, the right answer, quote unquote, is that's the only voice to listen to. Uh, but the reality is none of us only listen to one voice, God or anybody else, which here's the healthy side we can get into really dangerous territory if we isolate ourselves when it comes to really anything, spirituality included. Um, the, our Jewish friends teach that the biggest threat to the community is not heresy, but it's hypocrisy. And the reason they say that is because they don't, they don't study, they don't pray, they don't do anything by themselves. It's always like when Jesus talks about where two or three are gathered, that, that's the whole Jewish notion. And I think I not, I don't differentiate between God's voice and the voice of the community. And when people are speaking um, in an encouraging or a prophetic or a, a, a deep way to me, I think that um, God speaks through all sorts of things. As the psalmist says, like the stars night after night, they pour forth knowledge. Um, and so I think there's a responsibility um, for all of us, whether we just attend a church or a synagogue or a mosque or whether we're a faith leader, whatever it is, I think there's a responsibility for all of us to listen together. Michael's comparison to the Jewish tradition is a striking one. Their action in their religion involves community study and working together. That community faith practice keeps their followers accountable and aligned to the word of God in more consistent ways. This makes sense, for as Michael says, in this way, there cannot be a separation from the voice of God and the voice of the community. It becomes just one voice of God speaking to his followers. And one of the things I recognize about what you're saying is that your own upbringing, your own identity, and what you had been socialized to think about the LGBTQIA community was really about they can't make it in if they 
don't actually repent for their their sins, which actually said, I'm not going to see them because God doesn't see them, nor will I actually minister to them, which is something that is a cultural difference than how a deity operates, because the very thing that scares us is the very thing that God and Jesus would step into. God always stepped into the controversy, controversial. He spoke in parable and he was always deconstructing what was a cultural tradition to actually speak to the kingdom of God. I want you to sort of like help me understand how you all in the evangelical faith sort of like come into this conception of God. Tell me a little bit about how you came into your relationship with God. Who was he to you? How did he speak to you? Well, growing up, I grew up in a very extreme right, extreme hyper-fundamentalist church culture to the point where a therapist of mine once asked me without trying to be funny, um, was your upbringing in a cult? Like, were your parents a part of a cult? I mean, it was that that intense uh, kind of environment. So with that, one of the things I remember hearing over and over again as a kid was God hates you. And I've told that to people before and they're like, no, come on. I'm like, no, no, no. This is, that was like part and parcel. God hates you um, was what I heard. And then I heard, you know, as if that's not enough for a kid to hear over and over it was things like God cannot stand to be in the room with you or God can't even stand to look at you. And um, yeah, that's the God I grew up with. I mean, that was my earliest concept of God. And the only way for this God to, to not like absolutely set me on fire and torch me and torture me for an eternity was for me to be under the blood of Jesus. This is the other thing we always heard about was like, you have to be under the blood. You have to be under the blood. Um, and then God could tolerate me. It, was, it wasn't even necessarily like God will love you at that point. It was God will tolerate you, um, which means God's disposition as a hateful, angry cuss actually never really changed. Only my status being under the blood um, or covered in the blood, that's what changed. Michael's words were the reminder of a harsh reality for me as I was growing up in the church. You see, to be under the blood of Jesus was protection. And that was the cornerstone of my teachings. However, the reality of it, as Michael said, was that God hated me and God was not for me. So let's sort out this version of salvation. I was to fight for God and all of his righteous ways, but ultimately in the back of my mind, I still had an unanswered question. Would God fight for Tony? God spoke into the darkness and formed our existence, but they told me he couldn't deal with my sexuality. And through my giftings, I simultaneously felt a closeness to God, but I also felt the abandonment that coexists with who you are and who you could be in the church. I would fall asleep begging God to save me. I would fall asleep telling God, I'm so sorry for my sins. Um, and it wasn't because I loved God. It was because God hated me. So I was terrified. And Richard Rohr, who's a Franciscan priest um, whose ministry is located in New Mexico, he describes this kind of religion as nothing new. This is like the primitive form of religion that people have in, like, 
engaged with from, from the dawn of human consciousness. He says that this kind of religion is a cautious standoff with an angry deity. So how does Michael learn to see beyond this angry deity to a benevolent and merciful God? The thought of being terrified of God and living in fear of going to hell was relatable to me. I've sat in the pews as many folks actually personified the raft of God. That if you wanted to walk through those pearly gates on those golden streets, you'd have to rid yourself of a sinful life. And so I was in that world and kind of bought into it until I was about 15 or 16. And then something in my head was like, I can't, I can't do this anymore. So I, in that world, I went off the deep end a little bit. Everyone was pretty certain I was going to hell. Maybe I was, I don't know, but I felt like I was already in hell. So anything besides that seemed better. And um, right when I got into college, I remember someone saying something about the prophets. And I just decided I was going to read the Hebrew prophets. I think it was a sophomore in college. And I read them start to finish. And every last word that they wrote, I read. And it took years for me to really process this through college and even just out of college. But what dawned on me was I began to realize that the Hebrew and the Christian scriptures were the very thing that were explosive and actually seemed to speak against the world that I grew up in. And even if you read the gospels, Jesus is continually preaching against the world that I grew up in and the way that kind of thinking of the narrow moral hell-based, fear-based thinking. So as I came out of college, I was like, wait, 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 if, if I found that in the Bible, then like, what else, what else was I not told about? What else was I missing? And that's, that started propelling me forward into thinking or rethinking, um, the, the faith tradition that I, w- I was raised within. And so I just threw everything on the table and I began sorting through it. And I had a strong feeling that the God that I grew up with was not the God that was found in the Bible and definitely not the God that I was coming to know through the Bible, through Jesus and through others. In religious communities, we're often given a version of God that is passed down, perhaps from one generation to the next. Then there's a tricky moment when you experience something that disrupts your life. Now we have the ultimate faith dilemma. Can I believe what I've been taught? With new inputs, with new experiences, with meeting new people, does the doctrine and the gospel, the God of my faith, actually translate into the world that I live in? If you remember Brandon from part one of our series, you're probably seeing the same overlap here. He's facing the same faith dilemma. For Brandon, his disruption came from ministry training. He was going to the south side of Chicago, meeting and engaging with people, not only from different religious backgrounds, but also cultural backgrounds too. For Michael, his disruption was way more subtle. He was finding something different in his research. And that led to a curiosity for what God was really telling him that was quite different than what he had been taught. Though different, both went through a transition on their journey that radically changed their course and outlook. Uh, this whole process of exploring the Bible, but also more than the Bible, because the Bible continually talks about all the ways that God speaks, which means that God's not just speaking through the Bible. 
Um, God's speaking through people, God's speaking through nature, God's speaking through his spirit, God's given us an inner witness. And um, th- those were those were some of the really formative things for me to grow and recognize that if Jesus is the face of God, um, then, then we can be rest assured that God is, as John says in his letters, God is love. Uh, and that this, this world that we live in um, is imbued with the life of God and God's on our side. I was wondering, what did Michael learn in that value system around what God stands for or against as a far-left church? I th- well, I'd say this. If you're familiar with the moral majority in the late 70s, early 80s, uh, Jerry Falwell, Pat Robertson, uh, James Dobson from Focus on the Family, um, God, well, America, first of all, was God's instrument. Um, I heard terms like, we are the new Israel. And the, Israel, the Israelites, the Hebrew people, the Jewish people, their tradition is that God chose them to basically facilitate a relationship between humanity and God. Because we are God's chosen, um, this is why God has blessed America, because we are friends with Israel, um, and because we are fighting the good fight. And if we as a country turn our back on God, which really in the world I grew up in was directed at people who... Uh, were um, for a women's right to choose and toward the gay community, largely. Um, so women's right to choose, by the way, was also bound up in sexual promiscuity, as was the, the assumption was if you're gay, then you're sexually promiscuous. Um, and so those two groups were, were in the, like right in the bullseye um, for those who were endangering our call as a nation to be the people of God. And so it was very much the, the preaching, the, the hatred that was directed toward those groups of people was intense. And it was because we had to make sure that we could remain secure. We had to be sure that we could do what God was calling us to do in this world, which was basically kind of be the moral police. Um, not only the church was the moral police of culture, and then our country was to be the moral police of the world. So you know, I, I remember growing up and, you know, we were going to just kill the Bolsheviks and the commies. And I mean, it was awful. This imperialistic, um, hate-filled, violent way of seeing God in, in, in God's bloody endorsement of this country. Um, and yeah, I mean, so all the tales of all the founding fathers, you know, I mean, they were all good Christian men. Um, you know, I grew up in a world, for example, I went to private Christian school. We never learned about the civil rights movement. We never learned that some of the best preaching and some of the best liberation theology in the 20th century came out of black churches in the deep South. Never heard any of it. With more exposure to this Republican God, you begin to notice a parallel between the religious doctrine and the moral politics of our country. Michael's words reminded me that this duality was not only ingrained in the fabric of America, but also our faith. That being the moral police of the world delusion with the struggle of black and minorities in this country was actually what this God was about. In his makeup and how he viewed the world, he was akin to the founding fathers and he spoke through, and sometimes exclusively, his own. This concept of God also creates an image of his son. After all, what son doesn't look like their father's? 
many Christian followers have an image of Jesus in their home or see them in a religious symbol. For Michael, I wanted to know what were the physical characteristics of God? What was his complexion? What does his hair look like? What did Michael's picture of Jesus look like? <laughs> well, we didn't have any artwork of God, uh, but Jesus looked like he had, was like Mr. Sweet in 1992. <laughs> Blonde hair, blue eyes, fair complexion with the like Mr. Sweet in like blue sash across the white robe. Um, and, and it was interesting for me, and here's why. My dad's a Cuban immigrant, and he was so deeply affected by racism when he came to the United States as a, he, he's a lighter skinned Latino, um, that he did everything he could to assimilate into the white American culture as his way of escaping pain. Um, and obviously it never worked. His name is Carlos. So once people figure out his name, they figure out his background. Um, and he wanted that for his kids. He wanted us to be good white Americans. Um, and so being pushed toward that vision of America, being pushed toward that vision of, of God in some ways was actually my dad giving up his identity in a world that said, your, your identity and your backstory are not welcome here. Um, but yeah, we, our, our God was white. Our God was American. Our God said the pledge of allegiance. Our God sang that, you know, he didn't kneel at the star spangled banner. That's for sure. Uh, our God was Republican. We would hear um, that's God's man in the White House when it was Reagan or Bush. Uh, and when it was Bill Clinton, it was, hey, we need to pray for our president. Um, because obviously that's not, that's not the guy. That's not God's guy. Um, and so, yeah, everything was contextualized. The best way I could say it is we contextualized everything through a 20th century white upper middle class, male conservative lens, all of our theology that we were taught was written by white men. And we were told this is the way. We can legislate God without having to live through him. But how does that happen? We've seen this play out when others bring God close enough to resemble who they are, what they look like, what they care about, in a sense, we are setting the rules with no right to follow them. Now we can see where this level of empowerment comes from. When you look like God, when you can produce images of his son that look just like you, you can take one final step to create and institutionalize a global system that will endorse and never penalize what you do. Through the eyes of this God, if you are white, things are legal and moral when you do them. But if you are black and brown, the things you do are illegal and immoral. Let's begin to censor this God into the 21st century. Write to our president's doorsteps and think about what God is talking about now that his politics exists in the Republican Party. For Republican, God cares about all the issues, abortion, gun control, of course, immigration and homosexuality, and feels strongly about them. Knowing that this God feels strongly about these issues and his followers fervently and maybe even sometimes fearfully follow his words. How does Michael create a space of mixing scripture and politics to craft a belief system in this climate? Yes. 
I think politics is often mistaken. Uh, that word's thrown around a lot in, in churches. And what people mean when they say that is this is partisan. And so what we often try to do, if, if you were ever at Denver Community Church on a Sunday morning, I get up and say, good morning, everybody. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to and whatever the passage is. And I do that very intentionally because while evangelicals claim to care about the Bible, uh, 78% of evangelicals have said the Bible does not factor into their opinion regarding immigration policy in the United States. So they can say they care about the Bible, but whatever's going on, they're not actually learning and gleaning anything from it or I should, with regard to that particular policy. So what we'll do is say things like, um, for example, the word hospitality um, in Romans chapter nine, it says practice hospitality. That's a direct command from the apostle Paul to the church in Rome. That does not mean throwing really great parties with like really nice casseroles and, and a bottle of wine. That word is the two words in Greek, phylos, which is love of, love of family or a brotherly love, and xenos, which is immigrant. Practice hospitality means welcome the immigrant. If you look through Torah, God continually says, love the immigrant because I do. The only people that God says he loves in the first five books of the Bible are immigrants. And so rather than come at it from a, um, rather than starting with a, a petition, rather than starting with a statement, um, we ask the question, if this is the trend that we see in our sacred texts, then what is our responsibility in 2018 in the city of Denver to care for and love and provide for the immigrant? One of our pastors told one of our congreg congregation members who was angry that I preached about immigration, he said, go read every single Bible verse that talks about the immigrant. And when you're done, we'll meet. And I want you to tell me what you think God's disposition is toward immigrants. Two weeks later, they had lunch and the guy was like, I had no idea the Bible said that about immigrants. Like God loves the immigrants. <laughs> like, right. This is what we're supposed to do. Uh, if, so if we say we're going to be people of the book, we need to do that. And so what I will often do with evangelicals who say we're you know, all about the Bible, I will call out or ask questions about their seeming inconsistency that you say you're about the Bible, yet you support policies that are like, fly right in the face of the very biblical authority you're claiming. We just talked about the things that are foundational to the evangelical tradition, but the most important issue on this poll was terrorism. And we know when we get a base to fear a group of people, it makes it easier to exclude them. Well, it goes back to a wrongheaded belief that we are somehow God's chosen people. And so if that's the case, when you look at... Um, the way the Hebrew scriptures are framed of go and perform genocide on these nations who are not pleasing to God. You're only steps away from connecting the dots to go do that with others, which is, which is why the U S military has enjoyed so much support. And what, what do, who do we fight for, for God and country? Because no human being is willing to pull a trigger because of some individuals ideas they have to be called to something higher so in our culture we get called to god and country that's what who we're defending and fighting for and so when someone then threatens the chosen people someone threatens not 
not just our wealth and security, but our religion, um, it, it's, it's go time. And yet it took a military man, General Colin Powell, to point out that the war against terrorism is inextricably bound to the war on poverty because we spend half, oh, more than half of the world's, the global military budget. And yet we spend a fraction of that on aid to foreign countries. And I believe in the way of love that if we actually want to the most impoverished, to those who are the most vulnerable, to those who've been most exploited, and we became a healing agent of bringing supplies, uh, protecting those who are vulnerable, um, truly defending, not attacking, but defend, like protecting in the sense of like, we will defend you if anyone comes after you. Uh, if we began feeding and educating, if we began um, empowering women in all parts of the globe to a greater degree, it's really hard to hate someone who practices benevolence. And I think one of the things that we see with Jesus over and over and over is he's always practicing benevolence. And so we are about winning through power. Jesus is about winning through subversion. The cross is the most subversive thing you can, you can think of. We say the cross is our victory. Well, the cross is when our God got, got crucified, like got killed. Um, and yet now our idea of victory in religion and country is about power over. And I think it's about power under. And Greg Boyd says that the worst thing that can happen to the church is to give it political power. And that's what's happening. So when people talk about this idea of like the war on terrorism, um, there, besides the, the, the history behind it and besides the violence that the Western world has perpetrated against um, our Arab friends and our Muslim friends for centuries, um, we have missed opportunity after opportunity to care for the poorest and most vulnerable as a way of saying we can be a benevolent, uh, a benevolent group of people, um, which in the political sense would actually serve our, our security concerns and our, our interests um, instead of being you know, the strong arm global military superpower because people don't love you when you bomb their neighbors. People don't love you when you bomb their nephews and their nieces and their friends and their sons and daughters. Um, we haven't woken up to that yet. We believe in the myth of redemptive violence, that somehow violence will bring peace and it won't. So if you're making a list like I was when I read the survey, here's what's at the top of the list. Of course, abortion, terrorism, the federal deficit. But I begin to wonder about the things that were at the bottom of the list. Race relations. Only 31% of Republicans say that this was a top issue. 61% of Democrats, in contrast, said otherwise. The other issue near the bottom, class stratification. 29% of Republicans think this is an issue versus 70% of Democrats. Are you thinking what I'm thinking? Why does the Republican God care less about these issues? Be, well, because when you speak about white evangelicals, we've had a pretty freaking great life at the top of the heap in the United States since its founding. When you begin talking about racism, it's not just the hatred that one might hold in their heart. It's participation in the systemic realities of racism. 
it's when you talk about white supremacy, you're talking about the system on which our country was, has been built and has been maintained up until today. And if we're going to dismantle that, that's going to cost something for a white male that, that we're going to lose something in that. And people don't want to lose that. And so it's much easier to tell people to maintain some sort of moral code um, and be, get really good at it without ever having to actually go and do the interior work of how am I, how am I complicit in a system of racism? How am I complicit in a system that keeps women, LGBTQ folks, um, people of color off the platforms? And if I'm going to be serious about that and I'm going to repent and confess, I'm, I'm going to have to give up things that, that to this point have made me who I am. And so when you ask about like, why are these, why are these issues? Like why, why do only 31% care about this? And it's because there's no broader vision for, for the systems and, and the powers that are at work in our world. And it's interesting that so few care about the gap between rich and poor, because there's been multiple studies done that show that the narrower the gap is between the wealthiest and the poorest in any civilization, um, that is a clear indicator on things like crime, on things like um, the GDP, on things like um, uh, education, on all the things we should care about. The narrower the gap between rich and poor, the better society functions for everybody. Um, but when you're at the top and you have everything um, handed to you and you've grown up in a system that's favored you, to undo that system, people just aren't going to be interested in that. There is a glaring sentiment here that we need to take our country back to then, not only an undertone, but in a direct change to values. So why do some issues float to the top and others press down? The agenda of the Republican God is to adopt a worldview that resembles the 1950s. Let's put this in perspective. 80% of Republicans, while only 32% of Democrats, agree police officers generally treat blacks and whites and other minority groups the same. Based off this conversation we're having today, we can easily dismiss that notion. But we do have to sit with those numbers and what they tell us about people. Here we have 80% of seemingly white people saying everyone in this country is treated the same by law enforcement. It feels puzzling until I remember those moments that non-guilty verdicts were rendered in the wake of innocent lives, black lives being lost. Then I understand how these numbers make sense to those who dole them out. The beliefs of this group reflect the outcomes in our judicial system that what was done to innocent people was indeed fair. So where does this lead Michael and his congregation? How do they refocus, change minds, and show that God is fighting for everyone? This conversation has me wondering, will becoming fully inclusive become a trend? It's morally right, but risky for church business. As Michael's concepts of God has evolved, how will that impact what the church stands on and votes for? In alignment with Michael's church becoming fully inclusive, I wanted to know what work was being done by his congregation to make that happen. As a predominantly white church, they were making the choice to go beyond just accepting all walks of life, 
but taking action for racial and cultural progress this country really needs to make. For the change we want to see happen in America, what is the role of white churches to adopt a new awareness of God that provides a fuller grasp of the gospel? Yeah, well, I'll start with the, the biblical teaching and principles idea first, because I, I, I can honestly say, I, even if you give a really cursory reading to the gospels, you see so quickly and so clearly that Jesus was about, he was interested in taking the right stand on issues. As Greg Boyle says, he was interested in standing in the right place. And Jesus was and is for all people. And what really got him angry was the exclusion of someone based on their race, based on their religion, based on their ethnicity, based on their gender, which is why it was so scandalous for him to talk to a Samaritan woman, which is why when he said he was going to go to the home of a centurion in Galilee, people gasped and couldn't believe it. Um, so I think the biblical conversation is important, uh, in, in, I would say seems obvious. I think what we've done and what we are in currently doing is when the, the number of times I I'll speak about racism and have a white person come to me and say, quote, and I mean, you can almost like bet on it. I'm not racist. I have friends who are black or brown or whatever. Um, yes. And what they're thinking, again, you go to individual me and God story, not seeing the systemic is I don't have anything against people of color. So therefore I'm not racist. They see racism as a disposition in one's heart. And there is some truth to that. What they fail to see is a how, and I'm guilty of this, a passive, ignorant participation in a system of white supremacy. That's the kind of racism we're talking about now. Um, so for us as a congregation, we say with our leaders, we should never ask our peoples to do something we have, have not, that we are unwilling to do or that we have not yet done. So we've been going through um, a racial identity conversation um, for months. Um, I started several years ago when the term white privilege began getting used. I was like, what is, uh, to my own ignorance, I was like, what, the, what is this white privilege thing they're talking about? Um, and I went through an exercise. This was actually in seminary of with pastors. There was a whole group of us, um, white, black, brown. It was great. And just learning about what it's like to live as a white person. Um, so questions were asked about like, if you've never been followed in a, in a clothing store out of suspicion of shoplifting, take a step forward. If you've never been pulled over by a police officer and asked, why are you in this neighborhood? Take a step forward. And by the end of this thing, I was on the other side of the room and I had friends who were st still at the starting point um, because they had experienced all those things. And so to begin waking up to, this is what this means. This is, this is the way our country has been. We call what Michael is referencing here a privilege walk, an exercise where individuals can contextualize and see how their white privilege has put them ahead of people of color in this country. I've personally done this several times. The questions asked allow you to quickly see how many disparities lie 
in our lives as Americans. With each step, the gap grows larger between those in the front and those that end up in the back. In this case, this was the separation for Michael from those that were sitting in the pulpit and those likely towards the back of the pews in the church. In this room, Michael walked in feeling close and friends to everyone, but by the end of the exercise, he was on the other side of the room, separated, yet responsible for the pain of his peers. The gospel now sits in this gap that does not exist for God, but we created between each other. What did that mean for Michael to finally see how this privilege set him apart? Um, that yes, I, of course, like I would say, yeah, no, I know that exists. But all of a sudden I was like, wait a second. How have I continued to par- participate in this and perpetuate this and use it to my advantage? What are those ways that I'm doing that? What are the ways that um, I know I can walk into certain rooms and certain churches in certain places? And because I'm white and because I'm male and because I'm straight, I have an entitlement that I'm going to go speak on that platform. And so it woke me up to, like I said, my ignorance, my entitlement or arrogance, however you want to call it. Um, and how through those things, I had fooled myself into believing that everyone else, so to speak, um, they, they'd get their turn, but I was going to go get mine. I was going to go get my opportunity. There's a relationship between privilege and unconsciousness. The more privilege you give up, the more conscious you become. We often just want folks to acknowledge their privilege. But there's a deeper faith practice and breaking that down and transforming it into something else. For Michael, it wasn't enough just to become fully inclusive. He was taking his congregation on an even more rigorous journey, becoming actively anti-racist. His faith walk led him to a perspective that was pivotal in helping him to understand that in order to be a friend or even an ally to someone, you must inherit their troubles and fight their fight alongside them. This was a new concept of God, contrastly drawn to the one that we introduced you to, that a different walk, a different pivot, leads you to a different gospel. Michael's look in the mirror led to deep self-work. Michael's now pressing his congregation to take accountability, not just for their fellow man, but for fellow women, LGBTQ folks, all people in his congregation. Let's end on this. Who is God to Michael now? In this day and age, the Republican God has allowed a space where you can be a pastor who can create messages of God's love for the LGBTQ community and still be silent and therefore complicit in racial progress in this country. You can do both and do it in the name of God. Michael continues journeying. What significance does God hold for him now in his worship and in his study? I'll respond to that with a story from the book of Acts and then a story about hiking with my daughter. That's fair. (laughs) Um, There's a story in Acts chapter 10 about Peter who goes to Joppa, which is interesting because Joppa is the place that Jonah went to when God told him to go and visit the other. Peter's in Joppa. He has a vision in which a sheet comes down with unclean animals on it. And the voice in the vision, Peter's like in this trance, this altered state of consciousness, says, get up, kill it, and eat. And Peter's like, no, surely not, Lord. I've never eaten anything unclean. Talking about religious purity. 
And God says, don't call anything unclean that I've called clean. So this happens three times as Peter's in this like <clears throat> trance, hypnosis, whatever. We, it's a vision. Uh, some people come from the house of a Roman centurion and say, hey, uh, you need to come with us. And so Peter's like, oh, I get it. I'm supposed to go. And what's really interesting is when he walks into that house, his opening line is, you know, it's against the law, meaning against the Bible. It's against scripture. You know, it's against scripture for a Jew to associate with Gentiles, right? And then he says, but I now, uh, God has shown me that I shouldn't call anyone impure or unclean. Those are cultic ritual terms, meaning nobody is distanced from God. And he says, I now realize God doesn't play favorites. It's just this beautiful opening. Remember, I talked about expanding. Peter then goes back to the church after spending time with these folks. Oh, by the way, he has this conversation. Then the Holy Spirit shows up on the Gentiles. Peter goes back to the church in Jerusalem, and they're losing their minds because he's, he's violated the this, this scripture. And he says, no, no, no. I had a vision, and the Holy Spirit showed up. And I think about our context today. If you walked into most conservative churches and you had violated something that was central to the Bible and said, no, you don't understand. I had a vision and the Holy Spirit showed up. I think people would throw you out in your ear. But the early church, when Peter told them the story, he said, who was I to stand in God's way? And they celebrate. Which, And there's this, this joy because they realize like God is on the move and God has always been on the move. And so often we're the ones who are late to, to God's movement. The spirit's always out ahead of us. And so when you ask me, who is God to me now? He, God is, as Jesus says of the spirit, the spirit blows wherever it pleases. The wind blows wherever it pleases. No one knows where it comes from or where it's going, but God is always on the move. And that brings me to the story about my daughter. Uh, we do a lot of hiking, backpacking, camping out here in Colorado. And her and I were on this walk on the Colorado Trail. And it was just dense forest. You couldn't really see much. And we kind of came up to this little bluff and the trees opened up. It was really, it surprised us because we thought we were just going to be in forest forever. And there was the most amazing valley and hillside and then these jagged peaks in the distance and it was like one of the most beautiful views i've ever seen out here and she just was like awestruck she's this really deep soul artist oh wonderful wonderful young woman and we were talking about it and she was like there's something sacred here and i said well you know there's a verse in the bible that says christ is all and is in all and we, her and I have talked since about this idea that the line between sacred and secular is often one that we make up. And so when you say, who is God now? God is in all and is all. That God is the one who holds all things together. God is the one who gives life and breath and everything else. Uh, as Paul says in Acts chapter 17. And I think that expansiveness of who God is is what has led me to a place more and more and more like Peter to be like, man, <laughs> the Holy Spirit showed up. I don't know what else to tell you. Um, that, that God is always out ahead of us. God is always more expansive than we are. God is always so firmly rooted beneath us. God is all, it, and that freedom um, 
to discover that it's all sacred. It's all beautiful. It's all imbued with the life of God. Um, that brings a lot of joy that removes fear. Um, and it, it gives me such a deep and abiding love for God because he is a God who in and through God's self and in and through the universe in which we live is constantly pouring out and giving and giving and giving just so we can have a conversation like this. As a believer, I'm always moved by how God shows up in our lives, the questions we present to God and the ways he decides to answer us. Walking into my conversation with Michael, I had a lot of questions, but I stumbled upon one that made me realize what this segment was really about. What is God's justice? And what I've learned is that God's justice is really his love. Through this series, God is Republican, it was intriguing to see that still today, some congregations build the faith tradition that grace is only for some people. But then there are people like Michael who are actually helping their congregations do the uncomfortable realizing that salvation is for all and that it is our duty to show up in action for those that we've intentionally put on the margins so that we can actually be the in crowd. Michael has put the gospel where it belongs and has taken the time to see that God has been saying these things all along. And it is us mankind that needs to catch up to him. I feel like I should say the benediction right now May the Lord watch between you and me. But I'll just leave it there for now. Thank you for listening to The Promised Land.